end of the letter. We spent the last 10 or 11 weeks working through this phenomenal letter as Ella's just reminded us they're so rich in, in just drawing us towards Jesus to see his life, to see his ministry, and for us as the church to walk in, in the same path that he has walked. And the big thing that we've been going after these last weeks is, is that, that Paul is calling the Philippian church, and by implication, calling us to grow like Jesus, to grow up into the likeness of Jesus, to be him, be like him in the way that we live, in the way that we, we act towards one another, in the way that we steward what we have. And the thing that we see at each moment as we've looked at different aspects of how we can look like Jesus, the thing that we've constantly seen is this. When we do, we will look different. Like some of the decisions that Ella has made in the last 12 months look different, don't they? Like they're not sensible decisions in the eyes of the world. And we've used uh, this terminology over and over again. The church, the church will look countercultural. The church will look radical. As we live in the shadow of, of Jesus' life, we will look like him. And the more we look like him, the more radical we will look in the culture that we are set in. We saw this verse in, in chapter 2, didn't we? That Paul reminds the church that they shine like stars in the midst of a dark world. And that is true for us as the church. We shine like stars. We shine like lights in the midst of a dark world around us. We will look different. And Paul has called the church in many ways to act differently to the culture around. He says that they should abound in love towards one another. They should consider each other's needs before they should consider their own. They should walk, like we just heard, in a path of humility, not a, a path of power. They should embrace suffering. Like, how radical is that? Embrace it. They should endure loss for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus. They should be people who, who live with a genuine joy and a peace that truly surpasses all understanding in the midst of an anxious world. Like that is, that is radical. That is counter-cultural. That really looks different and shines brightly in the world that we live in. Leslie Newbigger, who was um, a pastor a few years ago, a theologian in England said this, that the church should live in the kingdom of God in such a way that it provokes questions for which the gospel is the only answer. We say that again, the church should live in the kingdom of God in such a way that it provokes questions for which the gospel is the only answer. And he's really helpfully just drawing together a few threads that we've had in this letter. So we've had this, this thread of a countercultural, radical church, and, and we, we live counterculturally because we live on a foundation of the gospel. We live as gospel people. It is only through Jesus, and, and he is the message of the gospel. It is all about Jesus. It's about, it's about his perfect life, his atoning death, his, his resurrection, his ascension to be at the right hand of the Father so he can intercede for us. And, and, and that, is, that is the essence. And, and we live by that and we die by that. And as we do, we will live in such a way that provokes questions of those around us. As we live in such a radical and countercultural way, it will provoke questions where, where the gospel is the only The Philippian church, as we've heard of last few weeks, lived in a climate of fear and anxiety and pressure. 
and we live in, in the same ways. And the temptation when we live in those ways is just to hide away. It's just to kind of come into to a bit of a holy huddle, just to come into Maranto's each Sunday and just get a little bit of church and then just sneak away for the rest of the week. But that is not Paul's ambition for the church. And it is not Jesus' ambition for his church at all. The ambition of God is that, is that we will hear the gospel, we will be fueled by the gospel, and then we will go back out into society as, as agents, as citizens of God, and live radical gospel lives in the midst of people who need Jesus more than anything else. We are called to a radical living. We live as we stand on the gospel and we hold fast to Jesus. And that has been the real message through Philippians. To grow like Jesus. It's going to look different. And that will come as we are people of the gospel. And this morning we find a final area of radical living that Paul brings to the church. And it's what I'd like to call this morning. Living the generosity secret. Chapter 4 verses 10 to 23. Let me read this last part of the letter for us. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly, but now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. That it was kind of you to share my truth. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving, except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from, from Epaphroditus the gifts that you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forevermore. Amen. With every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints for you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Living the generosity seed. I've said our city this week. This is a message that, that is so just timely placed for us. If you've been watching the news the last few weeks, you will have uh, seeing this, this unfolding story within our council of stories of corruption and stories of greed and deceit and manipulation. I don't know what your response to those stories has been. Me personally, I've been reading it and I've been angered. I've been frustrated. I've kind of find myself pointing fingers and shaking my head and looking at certain individuals and thinking about them in certain ways. But, well, folks, I want to be honest with you. As I've been preparing this over the last couple of weeks, I've felt the Holy Spirit Almost turn that, that thing around at me and, and God say, that is you. How often when it comes to stewarding my resources, I take a similar posture. I want to hoard things 
to myself. I want to keep things for, for, for my power, for my privilege, and, and for my happiness. John Wesley, who was a, an 18th century revivalist, famously said this, that our wallets are the last part of us to be converted. <laughs> and I don't kind of follow him all the way through, but I do understand what he's saying. Really, he's putting the, his finger on a part of our lives which we just don't want people to go. Of giving. How we steward our finances. And particularly in light of what we're talking about at the moment, how we steward our finances for gospel ministry. And there is just something that he's writing in the sense that when we give away our money, it's gone. Like, we can't do anything about it. Like, there's other areas of, of sacrifice that God invites us into where it feels a bit easier because we can still have a hold on that thing. But, but once our money goes, it's gone. We can't get it back. Well, that would be an awkward conversation if you give to the church and then come to them and say, can I just get a little bit of change from that? I, did, I didn't intend to give you as much as I did. It's gone. We have no hold on it anymore. So many of us, perhaps all of us, find this area to be an area of difficulty. We look at our money and we like to say it's our money. It's for me to do with what I want to do. Philippian church held up by Paul as a model church for generosity. We've seen it a few times through this letter to the Philippians, and if you'll flip back with me to Paul's letter to the Corinthians, uh, 2 Corinthians um, chapter 8, which is on page 968. You see him, him call out the Philippians and really hold them up again as a real example of generosity. In 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 8, sorry, it's the page before, 967. He's writing to the church in Corinth where he says this, We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given amongst the churches of Macedonia, the church in Philippi, one of those churches. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favour of taking part in the relief of the saints. What an example that is. In a, in a place of affliction, in a place of poverty, the church in Philippi gave out of a, an abundance of joy, Paul says. They, they had a wealth of generosity. They gave beyond their means. And I love this in verse 4. They were begging Paul to give. They were begging earnestly for the favour of taking part in this act of generous giving. Like Paul loves the Philippian church and he's holding them up as a real example of Generosity, And if we flip back to chapter 4 in Philippians, again in verse 15, we see that they were, they were right there at the start with Paul. They were one of his first partners. When no one else would partner with Paul, they were there. And again in Thessalonica, they're partnering with him. And we know that they sent Epaphroditus, this man that they loved dearly to be with Paul. And he's there at the point of death. They, they, they are generous. Epaphroditus comes with a gift and so much more in just who he is to bless Paul, to meet his need. But there's something really interesting as well in verse 10. I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. It seems that Paul is saying there was a period in which they were really generous. They, they gave beyond their means. They were radical in their generosity, but then there was a period where their generosity waned. 
that word revive that you see in the ESV there, it's a picture of a, of a dormant flower. So if you walk through Stefan Park at the moment, we're seeing everything come into bloom, aren't we? It's lovely, and, and everything's kind of popping up. And the, the picture behind that word revive is that it's been laying low. It's not been given what it should have been given out. And Paul is implying here that there was a period where the Philippian church weren't acting in this radical generosity that we see in other places. Folks, even the best will struggle with their finances. Even the best will struggle with this generosity secret that Paul is going to teach us. There are great seasons within the Philippian church, and it seems there are seasons where they have waned. And I would ask us this morning, which season are you in? When it comes to living with radical generosity, which season do you find yourself in now? Do you find yourself in the middle of a season of radical generosity, or, or is it more like your generosity has waned a little? Are you feeling the pinch of your generosity? Are you feeling that it is an act of joy like the Philippians felt early on in Paul's ministry? When your, your finances have increased, do you find that your priority is to increase your standard of living or your standard of giving? Paul gives the last word in this letter, the last word to the church in Philippi here. To encourage them to live a life of radical generosity. And he's going to show them what that looks like. But, but firstly, I want us just to pull out what the result of that kind of life is. What is the result of a life that is lived with radical generosity? You see, it's, it's kind of easy. I could just stand here and, and read a few verses and say, folks, we need to give more. We need to be more generous. But actually, we're going to see that's missing the point. Paul wants so much more than the Philippians' money. There's so much more that they receive when they live a life of radical generosity. And so the first thing that we see that we receive when we live this kind of life is that we grow like Jesus. And if I put my cards on the table with you this morning, it makes me uncomfortable talking about money. But it shouldn't. Because actually Paul shows us the goal when we talk about money is not your money, it's growth towards being like Jesus. Look at verse 17. Paul says, um, I need to get some glasses. I'm very, this is getting closer and closer and read. But Paul says, not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. And then he goes on in verse 18 and says, guys, I've got enough. Like, it's not that I need more stuff. He is all about them growing. He's all about them seeing the fruit. Remember back in verse 11 of chapter 1. He prays that they will be filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. That is what Paul wants. That is what he is about. That's the kind of growth that he wants to see in the church in Philippi. He wants them to be radically generous, but not because he wants their money, because he wants them to bear the fruit of being more like Jesus. That's what he is about. And if you want to understand what it looks like to be generous, folks, we just need to look at Jesus. That is where the fruit comes from. That's what we said in, in chapter 1, verse 11. The fruit of righteousness comes through Jesus Christ. And so, so if you want to know what it looks like to be generous, you look to Jesus. He is the epitome of generosity. If you still get your finger in, in 2 Corinthians, just go back there to chapter 8. Verse 9, Paul says this. 
You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Jesus is the great example for generosity. Through his poverty, Paul says, we become rich. Not financially rich, but spiritually rich. Like Paul would say that we, as we come into this world, by our very nature, are spiritually bankrupt. In fact, it's not even that our, that our accounts are empty. We are in the red. We are in trouble. We are debtors against God. Our sin stands against us. Our sin condemns us. We owe God because of our sin. And we stand condemned before Him. And we have no way of repaying it. But Paul says Jesus comes and makes that payment for us. With his life. And through his poverty, through him being humbled and covenant and living amongst us, we receive all of his spiritual blessings. Our spiritual accounts, if you put it like that, are filled, are overflowing with righteousness because of what Jesus has come and done for us. And get this, he doesn't do that for his friends, he does that for his enemies. Like some of us will have seen in the news this week. There's a group of, of MPs and a few peers and a few uh, journalists who, who are really standing and speaking about, uh, uh, against some of the atrocities in China at the moment. Against the Uyghur Muslims over there. And, and the Chinese embassy have frozen their accounts that they have in China. They're not allowed to trade. These, this kind of group, they're not allowed to travel to China. They're not allowed to trade there. They're not allowed to have any business links with China. They're treated as enemies. We are the enemies of God. We are naturally opposed to God. Yet how does he treat us? He fills our accounts with righteousness. He sends his son to die for us. Jesus' blood is shed for us. For his enemies, folks. That is the picture of generosity that God gives us in the son, Jesus Christ. And Paul says, grow into being like that. And you will when you live radically generously. That is the first thing that we see as we live this life with radical generosity. We grow to be like Jesus. And the second thing that we see in these few verses is this. The gospel will advance. The gift that, that Epaphroditus brought sustained Paul. Remember, he's in prison. It helped him. It kept him going. And what was the result of Paul's ministry? Look down at verse 22. With every saint in Christ Jesus, the brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. Wait a minute, Paul's in prison. So how can those in Caesar's household be greeting those in Philip? Remember back in chapter 1, verse 12, when Paul talks about the advancement of the gospel, that their, their, their love towards Paul really serving to advance the gospel? Well, it did. We saw back in chapter 1, it went to the guards around them and and it looks like some of those were saved. And it seems that the gospel has gone into Caesar's household. Into his kind of group of servants and slaves. And they have been transformed by it as well. Don't think, folks, that when we give towards the church, that money just vanishes and doesn't accomplish anything. It accomplishes eternal things. When we invest in gospel ministry, there is always a return. And, and most of the time, quite often, we will see what that return is here. Like folks of Liberty Church, in the last year, through your giving, we've seen church, a church planted in India. We've seen a church being established in Kensington in Romania. 
We've established our ministry here in Lockley. Folks, people have come to know Jesus because of your radical generosity. And we will see the fruit of that now. And we will see it into all eternity. I think that's one of the reasons why Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 9 that God loves a cheerful giver because actually when we give with the right posture, when we give to gospel ministry, we see the fruit. And we get to praise God for it. We get to enjoy the fruit as we see it. We get to see people's lives transformed. It is the only investment that we can make in this world with a guaranteed return. I don't know that you guys get bombarded with this, but in my junk mail folder, every day I'm getting told to buy cryptocurrency. I don't even know what this is, but they just every day tell me to buy this stuff. But I can tell you 100 years from now, whatever it is, it's not going to have the worth that it has now. A thousand years from now, people probably won't even know what cryptocurrency is. But a thousand, ten thousand, ten million, ten billion years from now, to all of eternity, we will see the fruit of the gospel radical generosity that we are, are making now. As we worship our God into all eternity, we will see the fruit therefore. The gospel will advance as a result of your, of your generosity. It will. But, there is also just a, a compelling nature as we give in those places. We will see the tangible fruit, but others will look on us as we give radically as well. Um, another kind of, if you're into investments, I guess cryptocurrency must be a good one because they keep telling me it is. But here's another one, Tesla. Anyone heard of Tesla? Yeah. Now, Tesla have a really um, interesting marketing strategy. Anyone ever seen a Tesla advert? No, you haven't. That's a lie. There are no Tesla adverts. <laughs> He's one of these guys. He'll just, if the preacher asks you a question, just say yes. <laughs> not on this occasion. There are no Tesla adverts. Their marketing strategy is not to advertise, or not in the way that the world will tell to advertise. And yet, you look at their stocks, you look at their shares, you look how much they outperform every other car manufacturer in the world. And they are just looking spots up everyone. They, they are lagging behind. There are so many people who want to buy a Tesla, they can't keep up. This is their strategy. We just make good cars and get people to talk about it. And it works. I've sat in on uncomfortable and dinner receptions a few years ago when I was in work where people are talking about their Teslas. I got two trains and a bus to get there and they were all talking about what different Teslas they have and how they outperform each other and all the matter and that is how they sell. They, they sell their product by just creating this conversation and using people <coughs> and their lives and just how good it makes their lives to sell their product. Folks, folks the, the, the transformation that the gospel makes in our lives will be visible to people around us and it will compel them. It will look different. It will look radical. Now, here's not what I'm saying. I'm not saying we don't proclaim the gospel. We do. We speak it out. But do not, do not neglect to see the power of your life just being lived amongst other people and how that will influence other people. And I, I know this. I know some of you have gone to get mortgages recently, and the bank are asking questions. What is, what's this big number that's going out in your account every month? And actually, some of you find difficult difficulties in getting mortgages because you give to the church. It looks, it looks radical. It looks different. It's countercultural, but it will compel people as they see the life that you live, and as they see you give not not stingily, not not giving begrudgingly, but giving cheerfully and giving joyfully. And people will look on and think, there's something good about that. something strange, but there's something good. 
as we live lives of radical generosity, the gospel will advance and we will see the fruit and others will see the fruit around us as well. So, so how do we do? How do we live this life of gospel generosity? Well, well Paul says it's not obvious. He says it's almost like a secret. So it's not like we can wake up one morning and be like, automatically, do you know what? I'm going to be a generous person today. I'm just going to give away what I have. It's not that it comes naturally to us in that sense. Paul says this, I've learned. He learns what it is to live a life of radical generosity. And three things that he learns. First, he learns contentment. If you want to live a life of radical generosity, first, we need to learn contentment. First, 11 and 12, he says, not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. If you want to grow to be like Jesus, if you want to see the gospel advance around us, as we live these radically generous lives, Paul says, first, you need to learn that what you have is enough. You have enough. And that is hard. Because there is always someone who is better off than you. Elizabeth and I bought a new car this week. And it's a nice car. God bless us to the penny with the money that we needed to buy that car. That's just a testament of uh, just God's, God's providence. But, but here's the kind of unrighteous part of the story. I'm driving with this car and I see a car with a newer race than mine. I'm like, oh, that looks a little bit nicer than my car. There's always someone who's better off than we. But Paul says your contentment does not come from what stuff you have. It isn't connected to your stuff. It's connected. It's um, not what we do have, rather. Or it's not what we don't have, it's connected to what we do have. Paul says if you want to learn this secret, don't look at, at all the possessions that you have. Don't be focused on, on what you don't have. Focus on what you have received. And how has he been repeating what we have received all the way through this letter? What has been this constant repetition of what we have? He keeps on saying, Philippian church, you have Jesus. You are in Christ. He makes it his life's goal to gain more than we saw in chapter 3. Paul is encouraging them to see, see what you already have. And we have the greatest gift that this world, this universe, could give us. Maybe we need to think less, less about what we don't have and more about what we've already received. And as we look about being people who are in Christ, having received Christ... We need to realise, folks, that we have already received and we have already had our greatest need in life and in death. Our greatest need in life and in death is to be with God. Like We need to be with Him for all eternity. If we want to be a people who have peace and joy and rest for all eternity, that is only found in God. And as we come into this world, we are naturally separated from Him. Our greatest need is to be found in Christ. It's to be in God. And Jesus... Jesus meets that need for those who are his. If you are a Christian here this morning, that need has been met. Your sins have been paid for. Jesus has brought you into the presence of the Father. You now are in a perfect, right relationship with God because of Jesus. Your greatest need has been met. And so you have enough. In having Christ, you have enough. In verse 13, you see this kind of famous verse that... that that many people know off by heart, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. 
There's lots of celebrities have this tattooed on different parts of their bodies. Selena Gomez, um, who is an actor and um, she's a pop star. She's a pop star and kind of shows uh, my uh, relevance to, to modern culture. An actress and a pop star, a millionaire. She has everything that she could ever want and she has this tattooed on her arm. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Here's the kind of difficulty with people like that having tattoos like that. The actual way that that, that verse should be read is, um, I can do all these things through Christ, uh, through him who strengthens me. And what has he just said those all things are? Well, he said about being brought low and how to abound in 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 any and every circumstance. He's talking about facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. It's unlikely that Selena Gomez is ever going to experience hunger or need or being brought low. It's a little bit out of context. What Paul is saying is in any and every circumstance, if you are in Christ, we are okay. He will strengthen us. We can be content in any circumstance because we have already received what we need. We have Christ. And so the first part of, of what it looks like for us to live this generosity is to see that our accounts are full. If we are in Christ, our account is full. We already have what we need. And that means, second, we can confidently depend on God. Because we have Christ, we can confidently depend on God. Verse 19, Paul says, My God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. He will supply every need according to his riches. Glory in Christ Jesus. Now, if I was a prosperity preacher, I would be in the zone with this verse. And this would be one of the verses that they love. And actually, Paul is saying that when we live a radically generous life, God will give. But not in the way that the prosperity preachers would say. It's just Paul says he will meet every need. Not every want. He will meet every need. If we are in Christ, our needs will be met. And now that could be a financial need. And God, if, if you need that, and it's, and it's in his will, will give you that. Like, he can do that. Like, he owns everything. Jesus took money out of a fish mouth. Like, like he can give you that if that is what you need. But that, that isn't kind of the limit of God's giving. He doesn't just stop there in what he will give to his people. He wants to give you so much more. Just look at what, what Paul has told the Philippians through this letter about what they need. Chapter 1, verse 9, he said they need to abound in love. They need to grow in knowledge and all the service. It says in chapter 2, they need to be like-minded. In chapter 2, verse 5, they need to have, have the, the same affection as, uh, as Christ. In chapter 3, verse 1, they, they need to have a joy that is found in the Lord. In chapter 4, they need to live with a certain gentleness. Like they are the things that the Philippian church need. Paul makes his life a life of just pursuing the glory of God. And the way that he sees that that glory coming about is being more like Jesus. So he sees that these are the things that we need to be more like Jesus. These are the real needs in our lives. Now we we might need money. We might need a a bigger house. We might need a a faster car. They are all inferior compared to our need of growing into the likeness of Jesus. Folks, if you are a believer this morning, your life's goal is the glory of God. You should want to grow in the likeness of Jesus. 
as he can shine his glory to us and through us as we bear his image to the world around us. And we can confidently depend on God that he will. He will conform us into the likeness of his Because we need to remember who we are and why we are here. And then work out what we need and depend confidently on God to, to provide those things. And hold lightly to everything else. We learn contentment. We learn to have a confident dependence on God. And then finally, we learn that radical generosity is an act of worship. Verse 18, Paul says, I have received full payments and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts that you sent, a fragrance offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And then in verse 20, to our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. I love that kind of visual imagery of fragrance, fragrant offerings, a sacrifice that is pleasing to God. Paul is using Old Testament language here, and it's, it's evocative language. And you see through the Old Testament this phrase coming up again of fragrant offerings, of sacrifices being made to God which he is pleased with. You see one back in Genesis chapter 8, as, as Noah and his family come off the ark, you see that he, he makes a sacrifice to God and a fragrance goes up and it is pleasing to God. And then through the, the rest of the Old Testament, you see God's people come to the temple, make sacrifices to God, and the, the fragrance goes up and, and God is pleased with it. One of my favorites into the New Testament, at John chapter 11, you see Mary come to Jesus and take this expensive jar, this alabaster jar filled with a year's worth, a wages worth of expensive perfume and break it over Jesus. And John describes in, in, in his gospel, he says, he says, the fragrance filled the room. And you see some of the disciples kind of just looking at Mary and particularly Judas, like he's so angry about it because he just doesn't get this passage. Like he just wants to accumulate wealth for himself. And Jesus turns around and, and he says, no, no, no. What she's done is good. In fact, people years from now will be talking about what she's done. And all of the examples that we see through the Old Testament, through the New Testament, of these fragrant offerings, of these sacrifices being made, we see that, that they are made with, with a, a deliberate act. We see that they are costly. We see that they are extravagant. We see that they look radical to the people around them. We see that they are made and given from a heart of love for, for God. And we see that in response, God is pleased. God is pleased with these radical acts of sacrificial generosity. Paul takes this theme and in his letter to the Ephesians he says this in Ephesians chapter 5 verse 2 he says the Ephesian church walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. A fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. A deliberate act. A costly act. An extravagant act. An act that looked radical to the world around. An act that looked foolish to the world around. An act that was made, as Jesus gave his life, an act that was made out of a heart of love for God. And as God looked on the sacrifice of his son, he was pleased. Paul elevates this act of radical generosity that, that the Philippians are making and that he would call us to make as well. He elevates acts of radical generosity to the highest human acts that, uh, that we can do. Worship. Paul takes it as, as a horizontal act and then sends it vertically. 
You see that in verse 20? To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. We may give and we may bless horizontally. This is about the glory of God. Do you see your act of generosity like that? Do you see them as, as acts of worship? Do you see them like that? Do you see that God is pleased with them? They may look foolish. They may be costly. But they do not go unnoticed. God sees our acts of radical generosity. And he says, that's good. I am pleased with them. This is glorious. For us to live a life of radical generosity is for us to grow like Jesus, to grow to be like him, and to see the gospel advance all around us. And Paul says the secret to living a life of radical generosity is to learn contentment, is to have a confident dependence on God, and to see your acts of radical generosity as worship. Part of this letter to the Philippian church is to grow to be like Jesus. That is what the city of Philippi needed more than anything. For Jesus' church to be like him. That is what Liverpool needs more than anything. For Liberty Church, for Cornerstone Church, for our church to be like Jesus. To be countercultural, to be radical. And that is hard. It is difficult. But listen to this last word of hope that Paul gives to the church. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ is with your soul. To live a life of radical generosity, to live a counterculture life, to live like Jesus is hard. And we need grace in order to do it, and He gives it. He gives it. This radical life comes through knowing Jesus, living for Him, living through Him, and living like Him. Do you want that? I'm going to pray for us now, folks. And I'm going to pray a few things. And if you, if you want that, if you want to live this radical life, if you want to be someone who grows more and more to be like Jesus, then, then when I finish praying, would you just say, Amen? You see that at the end of verse 20, Paul says, To the God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. That, that means, uh, shall, it, shall it be? It's an, it's an affirmative. It's you saying, yeah, I'm it. I want that as well. So as I pray this prayer, and ask us to stand as we do it. If you want to live this countercultural, radical life that God has called us to check into, I'd encourage you to say with a hearty um, a voice uh, behind your mask, it's okay, the particles will be stopped. A hearty voice, Amen. And if you don't know Jesus this morning, you need to be found in Him. And so I'll pray a prayer for you as well this morning. My hope and my prayer would be that you would say the same with a hearty, Amen. Amen. I want to be found in Him. I want to live like Him. I want to live through Him. Not for my glory, not for this horizontal blessing, but for vertical blessings, for His glory.